I think I'd like to start today by reading several passages of Scripture. Um, they'll be placed on the screen behind me. There's about six of them. But I would like to start by reading those, and then that will allow me just to try to prove a point after you see the Scripture, hopefully making the same point. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Ephesians 3. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. Paul writes a similar message to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested it in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul writes something similar in his second letter to the Thessalonians. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord. Because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. Two more passages. Hebrews 13, a benediction often given by Jim Stevenson. Now, May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And then, First Peter, another author. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you redeemed from the empty way of life, 
handed down to you by your forefathers. Oh, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And he, the lamb of God, was chosen before the creation of the world. That's when he was chosen. But was revealed in these last times for your sake. What do we believe about God? We know from the scriptures that there is only one sovereign being in the world, one big boss. He's the one who created all things, but there's only one God. The chief commandment is for you to worship him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that one God. But we know the one God exists in three persons, three personalities. There's one what of some sort and three who's. And the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son and the Father is not the Spirit, and I could keep going, but you get the point. Those three are distinct persons in the, the one God. And they are identical in their attributes. There's no differentiation between them and their divine attributes. None of them are limited in time. They're all eternal. They didn't have a beginning. They didn't have an end. All of them are not limited in location. In this room today is the spiritual father, the spiritual son, and the spiritual spirit. The three persons are everywhere present all the time. They're not limited in knowledge. They're not limited in power. They're not different in glory. It would be wrong for you to think that the Holy Spirit's pretty glorious, the Son is more glorious, and the Father's really glorious because he's the, he's the Dad. No, they're all God. They're all equal in honor and in glory and in will as well. It's not like one person thinks differently than the other, and then somebody has to submit. No, they have the same mind, the same heart, the same intentions, the same desires, and they're all equal in will because they're all sovereign, because they're all God, and they are not changeable. That's what we call immutable in fancy language. As it was in the beginning, so it is forever, shall be. They're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even the Son, I know what you're thinking about, He didn't change. The eternal Father, the eternal Son, and the eternal Spirit existed, and then the eternal Son didn't change that. He added to Himself a real human nature. But His divinity part didn't change. It can't change because He's God. So that's what we believe about God. So have you ever wondered what they did well, we know what kind of what they did in the beginning, but what did they do before the beginning? I'll tell you, they entered into what's been called in theological terms the covenant of redemption, or in the book of Hebrews, you just heard me, it was read, it was called the eternal covenant. It's where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who have always existed in perfect unity and harmony, way back here on the timeline, got together. And they thought, they planned, they willed, they promised amongst themselves. Because we didn't even exist yet. They covenanted amongst themselves. We're going to do this. And there they divided up roles. 
The Father will do this in the covenant of redemption. The Son will do this, and the Spirit will do His work. They work together in harmony, but this was the plan before the ages, before the time. So I read those passages to you, and I can send this to you if you want to so that you can have my notes. But when you put the pieces together, it is very clear from those six or seven passages, there's mystery. There's a lot about what went on before the beginning of time that we can't comprehend or figure out. I'll just grant you that. It's said in Ephesians 3, this is mysterious. It's hidden in Ephesians 3. It has to be revealed in 1 Peter 1. It's been brought to life in Ephesians 3, made known in Ephesians 3, and made manifest. But it was hidden, couldn't figure it out, and we still, there's much mystery that we can't comprehend. But just because we can't comprehend something, like I can't even figure out the one God in three persons thing. Or how God doesn't change, but yet he adds so that he's fully God and fully man. Or we've talked before about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There's a lot that I can't figure out, but I do not deny clear truth because I can't put the pieces together. So I'm not going to deny the covenant of redemption that I can understand. And so when you read those passages... This is what you learn. The where. Something's going to be done somewhere, and it's said, in the heavenly places. The when. In those texts I read, before the ages began, before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, from the beginning, from eternity past, or throughout all eternity. That's when it was done. What? The Trinity made a promise. They entered into a covenant. They shared a will. They shared a purpose. They made a choice. They predestined to deliver spiritual blessings, to show grace, to grant peace, to love, adopt, make some holy, make some blameless, and enrich spiritually. How? All this was to be done in the beloved, in Christ Jesus, in Him, in the Beloved, through Jesus, through the blood of Christ, by means of the Spirit. Why? For the praise of His glory, and especially amongst those who are called the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So one theologian has called this the grand demonstration. We had God back there in eternity past, saying, we're going to show grace and love like you've never seen, and we're going to do it before the watching heavenly realm as they watch what we get ready to do on earth. As you keep reading Scripture, what do you see? You see these roles fleshed out a little bit more. What did the Father agree to do? I will birth a son, and I will give to my son a kingdom, and I will give to my son an elect group of people that are going to be his citizens in his kingdom. And then, you know what I will do? I will watch my son work, and I will applaud, and then I will kill my son and sacrifice him. That's why we're calling it the Lamb of God. I am the one who provides the lamb to be slaughtered. I will then resurrect my son. I will watch him crush his enemies. 
and I will throw the biggest wedding feast imaginable when he and his bride are finally consummated at the end of the ages. I, the Father, swear to you, Son and Spirit, that's what I will do. What does the Son promise? I will not grasp my divinity or the privileges of such, but I will humble myself and take on the form of a servant. I will leave, be born, and add a human nature, and then from that point on as a human, I will look to my Father and always do His will. I will submit to Him. I will be filled with the Spirit. I will work. I will serve. I will drink the cup, die, and purchase my bride. I will be raised. I will take my throne. I will lose none. I will want to rescue my people, but I will wait while I'm still gathering in my people. I will be with you till the end. While we're still waiting, I promise to send the Holy Spirit to you, and I will come again, and what a party that will be. What does the Spirit promise? I will seal the deal. I will be the omega to your alpha. That which has begun, I will finish. Father and Son, as you send me, watch as I bring to fruition all that we together covenanted and planned before the beginning of time. And so at that point, they go to work. And we see the first thing the Holy Spirit does in his autobiography, because that's what the text is of Scripture, is he writes about himself. He inspires men to let us know what the Holy Spirit does. We see that he creates the earth. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist, and it says that they speak into existence the heavens and the earth in a void, dark, and empty, chaotic manner. And then the text clearly tells us what the Spirit does at that point. The Spirit of God hovers for some time until that beautiful ordering and breathing life into things that happen over the next six days. The Holy Spirit creates. Then what does the Holy Spirit do? He grieves. Why do I say he grieves? I think he's there in the garden because he's everywhere present. As they communicate to Adam and Eve, those people made in their image, all that they were to do or not to do. And then they watched the couple prefer the counsel of Satan over the counsel that they gave them. They watched the couple disbelieve God, disrespect God, disobey God, partake of the tree. And sure, there may be some other emotions that are presented that God has, but one of the things we know he has towards sin is anger. But we also know that he looks and he grieves. And so the Holy Spirit, I think, is grieving. And you only make it a few more chapters to, before it becomes very, very clear that as depravity progresses, as God turns people over to more and more depravity, as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve become more guilty, as they pass on that sin nature from one generation to the next, we get to Genesis chapter 6 and we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can I repeat that so I don't have to later? I want you to see it there. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, that every 
intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a bunch of words there that help you describe how bad the situation is. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. Remember, one of the attributes of God is that he does not change. Is God still grieved over sin today? One only has to go to Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So the Holy Spirit is engaged in creation. He then looks at his fallen creation, and the Holy Spirit grieves. Now, you might think that he might not grieve that, that badly because he remembers the promise that we made. I mean, back here in eternity past, all right, Father, you're going to send. All right, Son, you're going to go. I'm going to go. We've made promises that we're going to use all of our sovereignty. There's going to be a group of people that worship the king. It's all going to work out great. But remember, the Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, they're omniscient. They know all things. And they know that the only requirement to be in the camp of Jesus Christ is for someone to respond with repentance and faith. They just have to choose Jesus. But he's omniscient. And he knows that all the thoughts of the intentions of man's hearts are only evil continually, if I got it right. But there's none who are going to choose Christ. Not one. That they are stiff-necked people, the Bible calls them. He knows that they are wicked, with uncircumcised hearts and deaf ears. They're foolish and depraved. They're going to always resist that every intention and thought of their hearts is only evil all the time. But that's when the Holy Spirit goes to work. This is kind of where the good news is, and I'm going to go ahead and let you know that you can relax because we only get to about point four. But this is the good news. How do you know that you're in with Jesus? How do you know that you're okay with the Father? How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? The first way is not to look for supernatural signs. He gives those as he wants to, when he wants to, how he wants to. Do you have repentance? Do you have faith? Can you walk away from God but not be happy so you keep coming back? Do you keep confessing your sins and professing it before men? If so, this is the work of the Holy Spirit because you can't do this on your own without Him. Uh, so the Bible says that the Holy Spirit regenerates. He convicts. He breathes. He blows on people. He gives people new birth, rebirth, renewal. He gives people new eyes, new ears, new minds, new understanding, new discernment, new hearts. They have different desires. They have renewed wills. They accept Christ. They get new life. They get repenting faith as a gift. 
I think I need to read some more passages here because I know that we grow up in a culture where we think that God does his best and he throws out the lifeline and says, whosoever grabs can have me. And it's just our good job to grab and some are good enough to grab and some aren't. But I need you to understand that there's none who come without the help of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives repentance and faith. John 1. To all who received Jesus Christ and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those children of God were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. They were born of God. In Mark and in Luke, you see two prayers a father who cries and the disciples who cry. And both of them say, I believe, help my unbelief or increase my faith. And you might say, wait, 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 God doesn't do that. That's your job. You got to believe better. No, it's two prayers made in the presence of Jesus where people are saying, I know that you're the author of faith. You're the one who gives it. And I need more than I have. Can you please give me faith? And Jesus receives those prayers and honors those prayers because he knows he is the one who gives and increases faith. Two passages in Acts. God exalted Jesus Christ at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, wow, I added that. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There is eternal life. There is repentance that leads to eternal life. There is a God who grants the repentance that leads to eternal life. It's right there in the text. In Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's eternal life. There's those who believe. And who believed? Those who were appointed by God. I'm just showing this over and over again. Ephesians 2. It's by grace that you have been saved. Saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God it doesn't result, not a result of your works. No man can boast. How about Galatians? The fruit of the Spirit is a lot of things, that one fruit, that singular fruit. But one of the things the Spirit gives is faithfulness, full of faith. Where does faith come from? Where does your love for Jesus come from? The Spirit. He's the one who does this. Finally, 2 Timothy chapter 2. A prayer that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I am not going back on what I preached last week. There is a universal call that goes out to all. I mean, I, can, I, I know they plan whatever they plan here, but it's very clear as you're going down the gospel road here that somewhere along the line, the call goes out, whosoever will, let them come. Come to me, all who are hungry and thirsty. Come on. 
But we also learn that though the universal call is made, there is none who seek God, none who come on their own. They're altogether corrupt, which makes God unhappy. He grieves over that. But he's not done working because he promises to send the Holy Spirit. And I'm also not saying you're not responsible, that you don't need to choose. I'm not saying that. You are responsible. You must choose. You must believe. You must confess. You must profess him before men. And I'm not saying that you're some robot that he's working on, that he's violating your will. No, you always do. R.C. Sproul taught me this in that class in Florida. You always do what you want to do, which is why you're damned. Because you will always say no to someone else's sovereignty when you're king in your life. But the good news is, remember, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are omniscient. They know all things, but they're omnipotent. And they have the ability to work on your affections, work on your heart, work on your mind, and cause you to do what you want, which is gloriously to choose Jesus Christ and be saved. You actually call out to him and confess, and you have faith, but not in a way that you get to boast. It's the work of God. As he has kept his covenant made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when? Before time began, before the beginning of creation, way back in the ages. And what does he do? Well, just look at the rest of the list. He indwells. Now that Jesus is gone, he's at the throne of God above with his physical body. He sends his Holy Spirit like he promised. And there were times when God said, you can't touch my mountain. You can't come in my tent. You can't see my face. It was almost like he's saying, you're so bad, stay away. And now he makes you his temple, his tabernacle. He moves in intimately close in a way that the Old Testament believers couldn't experience all the time. And he never leaves you. He is with you all the time. Yes, he moves in and he saints you. He sanctifies you. He holifies. I made that word up. Holifies you. But he makes you holy in a way that you can't get better than perfect. That's what he does. But then he just doesn't stop there as you're sinning all the time, but yet you're positionally perfect. He starts teaching you that Holy Spirit. He starts counseling you. He starts instructing not only just through the mind, but he writes stuff on the heart. And then he starts coaching you. He fruits you. And you start more and more showing forth the image of Christ or the fruit of the Spirit as you are more and more saying no to sin and yes to Jesus, never perfectly, always a sinful saint. But this is what the Holy Spirit does in you as he's your coach. Or maybe your counselor, if you like that better. And then he's your finisher. There's never been one person filled with the Holy Spirit who found their way to hell. Oh, there were people at times fallen upon by the Holy Spirit to do some magic or supernatural wonders. Oh, there were some people who might get to the end of time and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we know you? Because we did supernatural stuff. Oh, there are times when God uses a Balaam. Sometimes when God uses a donkey. But there's never been a person 
who believed on Jesus Christ, confessed him with all their might, repented and kept repenting, believed and kept believing, was sanctified but kept pursuing sanctification. Whoever has lost the spirit because that spirit moves in and the Bible says it's a guarantee of the day in which he will finish us and resurrect us for the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and will give life to our mortal bodies. So now, how do we wrap this thing up? Who here, you don't need to say out loud, but you can if you want to. If you want to be contemporary, you can say woohoo. If you want to be Baptist, you can say amen. If you want to be Presbyterian, you can just sit there and be quiet. Who here believes in Jesus Christ? Who here has started the process of constantly repenting of your sins? Who here knows that he's the only way and you've called out to him and confessed your sins. Do you see what this is? This is a Christmas gift. The Father is the generous giver. The Son is the generous giver. And you can't come to those conclusions and have that in your heart without the Holy Spirit doing His job, which means way back here, before the beginning of time, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit swore to each other, I'm going to go get especially those people who keep saying no, who always resist the Holy Spirit, but never perfectly, because I'm powerful. I'm good. And so you sit here on this day, and you realize, wow, I, I, I do sometimes hate sin. I do sometimes want righteousness. I do keep wandering off, but for some reason I keep having to come back. I do believe this story about a Messiah who lived 2,000 years ago, who died on a cross but was risen again. I do want to see his face. Yeah, I'm full of sin. And yeah, I don't see the supernatural stuff happening. But I've got the effects of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And for that reason, you can rejoice today. You have a generous father, a generous son, and a generous Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas. This is one of the greatest gifts you've ever received, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. Keep step with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Enjoy the Spirit. He's with you until the day that one day you get to see your Savior's face, and then He's still going to be with you, for He'll never orphan you. You have been adopted. You have been filled. You're his temple. You're his saint. Merry Christmas.